This is the Realm of Agape Christian Church. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created human beings, see that, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said, have many children and grow in number. See, that sentence is showing you why there's male and female, because there had to be a reproduction ministry, amen? Reproducing after their kind, amen? Thank God. Have many children and grow in number. Fill the earth and be its master. Be the master of the earth. He's talking to both of them, male and female. Rule over the fish in the sea, male and female. Do that. And over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is the historical and cultural context that God intended for us to understand how men and women should respect each other? Is the historical and cultural construct of male headship to be comprehended as freedom to interpret domination and inequality? Is the subordination of women a creation-given construct? So many so-called scholars in the Bible are thinking that's what it is. But the Bible is chronicling for us the truth of the effects of that construct, and heaven is trying to reveal the alternative. But the day we hear his voice, we what? Shouldn't harden our heart. Amen. So let us continue to investigate the living truth reported in chapter three of Kevin Giles, why the debate has occurred at this time in history. Amen. And history has led us to the Christian's response to women's liberation. There's a freedom for women that has been uh, initiated in the course of our culture as it is. So we know that all flesh is experiencing this, whether you are Christian or not. And um, we want to look at what is the biblical mindset because we always live life through the biblical world view. Amen. So this monumental social uh, revolution was not easy for women to work out in theory nor in practice. It has been extremely hard for many men to adjust to it, uh, difficult for businesses to implement, and uh, overwhelming for many of our churches. Uh, the large mainline churches at first were uh, entirely hostile to the women's movement, even though it had its origins in the advocacy of uh, 19th century Christian women. Their hostility is surprising because one might reasonably assume that all Christians would gladly endorse the primary presupposition of the now movement, you know, uh, National Organization of Women. Um, that, that women first and foremost are what? Human beings who must have the chance to develop their fullest human potential. And many conservative Christians today, most of whom uh, had not read Betty Friedman's book, uh, wrongly dismissed this movement as a frontal attack on Christian values. Something new came, and they automatically was saying that it was demonic, but it was not attacking Christian values. The primary message of the feminine mystique is that women should be set free to express their full human potential and be proud to be women. There's no mention of broader issues uh, such as advocacy for abortion rights. It wasn't pushing that. The endorsement of lesbianism, it wasn't pushing that. 
nor any questioning of male-female differentiation. It wasn't uh, uh, pushing any of that. Roman Catholics, let's think, think about them for a minute in history uh, around this movement. Roman Catholics and those of conservative, evangelical, and reformed conviction, they were the most hostile, my God. They saw Friedman's book in particular and women's liberation in general as an attack on the Christian family. A father who worked and earned the money, a mother who bore and nurtured the children and ran the household. The problem with this view is that the so-called Christian family is a modern phenomenon, a consequence of the Industrial Revolution. Many people don't realize that when you're thinking in terms of Roman Catholics, conservative, evangelical, and Reformed convictions. So, as a result of the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and 19th centuries, when people in huge numbers left villages and fields to go to the cities, urban life, they created this new model of family where the men went out to work and the women stayed at home. By contrast, though, in the Bible and for most of history, if you think Hebraically of uh, the construct God has us looking at for our example, the family functioned as an economic unit. The whole family worked in the fields and cared for the animals, all of them did. The home was a place where everyone ate and slept, and often was the location for small-scale industry, such as, you know, spinning uh, the wool to make fabric, weaving clothing, you know, and fabric together, and, and also uh, carpentry. They had businesses for that. Uh, in shops and in businesses such as bakeries, every family member had a job to do. Uh, in this context, think about that. The wife usually managed household life. The mistaken view that the family consisting of a father who goes out to work and a mother who stays at home is still common in conservative Christian circles. Many Christians were hostile to the women's liberation movement for a second reason, namely because it propounded the revolutionary idea that marriages should be equal partnerships where women have the chance to develop their fullest human potential. This was taken to uh, contradict the Bible's teaching on male headship, quote unquote. You know, they a lot of times misconstrue what that means. The idea that men should be the leader and decision maker in the home and the pastor and leader in congregations. Initially, the Roman Catholic Church took the most uncompromising position, um, but in 1987, pretty recent, Pope John Paul II issued his binding papal letter called Mulieris Dignitatem, in other words, on the dignity of women. It was written in, in the 1987-1988 Marian year, uh, that he internationally pronounced to reverence Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's why I call it the Marian year. Uh, in this letter, he rejected the view held for centuries that in creation God subordinated women to men, insisting instead on their essential equality. But he wasn't perfect with this. However, on the question of leadership in the church, he maintained the traditional view appealing to the fact that the 12 apostles were all men 
and to the traditional Catholic idea that they were the first priests. He argued that women, therefore, could not be ordained in the Catholic Church. And of course, a lot of denominations which are considered uh, Protestant movements followed suit with uh, the ideology of the Catholic Church. Some sects even in uh, Pentecostal realms. Um, this has resulted in a very ambiguous Catholic position. Women cannot be church leaders because the 12 apostles were the first priests and they were all men. But they should be granted equality without any, you know, differences in how we construct things in all areas of life, including marriage, because this is the creation ideal, something endorsed by Jesus. Now let's look at liberal Protestants, those who kind of got a more loose ideology. Liberal Protestants embraced uh, with enthusiasm uh, the liberation of women. For evangelicals, it was far more difficult though. Uh, they had accepted the view that uh, prevailed until the mid 1960s, that men are to be in charge in the home. They got to be in charge in the church and they got to be in charge in the state. Most felt keeping to the old ways was what the Bible demanded, but a few brave evangelical and reformed souls came out boldly in support of women's liberation, arguing that uh, this is what the Bible intended. They were bitterly opposed by other evangelicals, mainly of reformed persuasion, you know, the ones that keep it real tight, uh, who argued that the Bible taught male headship, and uh, to deny this was to deny the authority of Scripture. That's why they held so tightly to it. You're going against the Word of God, you know, they said. This did not stop other evangelicals in ever-growing numbers from embracing the liberation of women, and developing a biblical case for male-female equality. For the last 20 years, the uh, social conservatives calling themselves complementarians have been in the ascendancy, growing in strength. But now they are under huge pressure to change for reasons that we mentioned uh, four time in the messages of chapter two from Giles. Let's talk just a little bit about the philosophy of feminism, then we'll be done just for today. And uh, we'll save the rest for part three. But there's a philosophy of feminism. The word feminism can be quite a loaded word as used in our culture. For social conservatives, especially Christian ones, feminism is an evil and destructive philosophy that has caused all the ills of modern society. The increase in marriage breakups, the undermining of the Christian family, sexual promiscuity, the acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage, abortion rights, the decline in church attendance, and much, much more. It is dismissed as a malevolent, monolithic movement seeking to overthrow society as it has existed across the ages. 
And we can see why complementarians insist on calling evangelical egalitarians evangelical feminists. To so name fellow evangelicals brands them as opponents to the Christian faith before they are even allowed to speak. My God. In contrast, for many others, feminism is simply a name for those who want to see men and women given equal status and opportunity. That's all. It is entirely a positive word. Its roots lie in the 19th century emancipation movement, uh, what late 20th century historians call the first wave of feminism. This was a movement led by evangelicals who believed the equality of men and women in Christ was clearly taught in scripture. They were opposed to both slavery and the subjection of women. Among the leaders of the first wave feminists were the evangelicals William and Catherine Booth. Guess what they founded? The Salvation Army. You ever heard of Sojourner Truth? She's among the first wave feminists. What about Amanda Berry Smith? What about Catherine Bushnell? What about A.J. Gordon and Frederick Franson? What this means is that feminism, as it bloomed in the 1960s, had deep evangelical and biblical roots. But sadly, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, very few evangelical Christians were at the forefront in efforts to see women granted equal status and opportunity or the civil rights movement. Most people fiercely opposed women's liberation at that time in history. Among those who gladly call themselves feminists, there are profound differences. To depict feminism uh, as, as a unified philosophy with common aims is mistaken. Don't do it. Uh, what some feminists advocate, other feminists oppose. They agree only that the primary agenda is that women be given equal status and opportunity. After this, they take many different paths. The assertion that post-1960s feminism is the cause of all the ills of modern society cannot be taken seriously. Whatever the downsides may be, the liberation of women has brought great good into the world to see women flourishing in modern life in ways hitherto unknown and unimaginable is surely something very positive. The uh, rewards of profoundly equal marriages that involve sharing household chores and child rearing and making decisions jointly is also something to be commended. Thank God my wife and I enjoy that. It is surprising that the Kostenbergers, remember we talked about them, uh, at least in one contradictory paragraph, have a, a very similar view of feminism with egalitarians. They wrote, quote, there is no question that feminism, a movement concerned with the advancement of women's rights and with the uh, achievement of women's complete parity with men in society, the home and the church, has had many positive results since its inception almost two centuries ago. Women's status and experience in the Western world, in particular, have been altered for the better in many ways. In this way, justice has been served, and many women have been lifted from second-class status to genuine equality with men. 
None of the ills of modern society can be attributed solely to feminism. They are rather a, a, a consequence of the profound social changes that have taken place in the last 50 years, of which the liberation of women is just one. For complementarians to claim that egalitarian evangelicals um, because they are evangelical feminists, knowingly or unknowingly are responsible in part for the increase of divorce, breakdowns in the family or, or for gay rights, and the acceptance of same-sex marriage is nothing more than an attempt to blacken the name of their critics when their appeals to the Bible for their own views on women have collapsed. And thank God, uh, the author goes on to say that those who berate feminism, the only way to bring a halt to the liberation of women is to exclude them from higher education. It is education more than anything else that has empowered women. In all thy getting, do what? Get an understanding. My God, we're going to reiterate some of this next week and then close out with part three. We're going to end right here. My God, women, you have a right to praise God. And I don't mean just clapping your hands to a song that we sing in church. My God, but with your life, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Women have a right. If God is calling you, why would he stop you at some stained glass window to keep you from completing the process of your calling? Why would he do that? He's going to, amen, bring you through. He's the author and what? Finisher of the faith that he will give you, women. My God, he gave it to you, and he's more than able to what? Complete it. God is the starter and the finisher. Let him, amen, bless your life. Amen. If you're called, amen, you have a right to praise him. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. We of the realm of Agape Christian Church pray that the Holy Word of God has richly blessed your soul. To send prayer requests, use the contacts page of our website, www.roagape.org. We need your continued prayers and financial support to maintain this ministry. You can also find a secure means of donating on our website. God bless you.